Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. To be really good at Christian roulette, the central player must have what I consider a very, very quick mind. He's got to have a creative imagination, but most importantly, what he has to carry with him is a divided heart. You see, the goal of the game of Christian roulette is to see how far you can stretch the bungee cord of God's grace and patience. Like in Russian roulette and Christian roulette, if you play long enough, you'll finally lose. But you see, that's what makes this game so exciting for most people. It's because you're always living on the edge. And by living on the edge and playing in two worlds, there's a thousand rushes you can get. Challenging of all people, God, what more ultimate competitor could there be than God? Seeing if you can perhaps stretch His grace to a record limit. Seeing if you can have your cake and eat it too. See, these are the things that make up this delirious game of two worlds called Christian roulette. Now, if you want to play Christian roulette, it's really important that you understand how to play this game. And that's what Hebrews chapter 10, I think, does so beautifully. It tells you who can play, and it tells you how to play, tells you the rules of the game and why you play, and also it finishes by giving you some of the consequences of playing. So let's read this passage together. Verse 26, it says, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses in the Old Testament died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe in the New Testament do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of his covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, as you might imagine, this is one of the two great warning passages of Hebrews. And if you've been with us in this study, or if you've ever had the occasion just to pick up this letter and read through it, you'll know that we are passing the second of two great mountain peaks on an otherwise placid landscape. And I think anyone who reads this book knows that that in all of the New Testament, there are no, no more two sobering passages than the one we pass sometimes back and this one, this great mountain peak that we are now facing here this morning. As I mentioned, the first we uh, looked at a number of weeks ago when we passed by Hebrews chapter 6, and there it seemed the writer, uh, as he spoke, turned from being an exhorter to a prophet. And if I might just call to your mind some of the, uh, uh, the incredible imagery that's on some of the films that we have today, like The Deep and and uh, Terminator 2, when we pass by Hebrews chapter 6, it's as if the page liquefied and a hand came out and grabbed us and pulled us real close to this text. 
And then with an ominous voice, it said these words in very chilling tones. If you go back to your old way of life, and if you completely fall away, there is no way back to God. You're declared useless. In Hebrews 6, the warning is, not, is about falling away from the faith, of disregarding it completely. But now as we approach this new mountain, as awesome as it is, it's not about those who have fallen away and disregarded their faith. It's about those who are intending to stay in the faith, but who in staying in the faith have deliberately chosen a lifestyle that then goes on and contradicts that faith. What about them? Well, let's start by observing who them are because that's an important observation if we're going to know who can play this game. A Christian roulette. Notice verse 26, it says, For if we... And let's stop right there with the word we. Who is we? You know, it's interesting as I read the different commentaries uh, this week in preparation of the message, many of the commentaries, and some of you have had this experience as well, will say that the we does not refer to a true Christian. That the we refers to a pseudo-Christian, someone who's really not born again by the Spirit of God, but who's somewhat playing a game within the Christian community. It's almost as if some of the commentators could not bring themselves to believe that a Christian could act like this. Well, I want to confess something to you. I can act like this. I really can. I have felt at times in my life the stirrings to go on and sin willfully. Now that's my personal experience. The writer of this book, at least contextually, certainly leans that direction. If you'll look back in verse 19 where Bill passed by just a week ago, uh, the writer says this in leading up to this text. He says in verse 19, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. That sounds like a believer, doesn't it? Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that sounds like a believer, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. There's no commentator anywhere that wouldn't say those are Christians being addressed here. And now he comes to the very next verse, verse 26, and he says, for if we... I find it really implausible to think that we could refer to anyone here other than a true Christian. To kind of seal that, if you'll notice in verse 26, it says the we are those who've received the knowledge of the truth. Epigenosis is the Greek word, and in every place it's used in the New Testament, it refers when it's speaking this direction to someone who's in the faith, a Christian. For instance, in 1 Timothy 2.4, it says this, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Same word, epigenosis. To be saved is to come to the knowledge of the truth. And certainly this writer feels like he is as, in, is ca as, as capable as I to do this because when the writer speaks, he even includes himself. For if we, even the writer, does this, then certain things are possible. Therefore, at the very start, when we say, who can play, the answer is any Christian. Any Christian, man or woman, child or adult, you can play Christian roulette if, that's the key word in verse 26, you might circle it, if he or she wants to do so. That's the key word. 
And if you want to play, here's how you play the game. First of all, you must choose to sin willfully. Not just to sin, but to sin willfully. What a descriptive phrase, but we've got to be careful with it here. To sin willfully implies something more than our ordinary and daily struggle against sin. To sin willfully implies more than an area of weakness that you may have or I may have in our lives that we seem to continually fail at, though we're continually struggling against and want to get victory over. To sin willfully implies more than just a brief period of carnality when for one momentary season of time we threw our spiritual responsibilities to the wind and decided to sin irresponsibly. To sin willfully means more than that. To sin willfully means a conscious deliberateness to action. To sin willfully means I think it through even though I know it's wrong, but I dwell on it, and I think how to do it, and I plan for it, and I set it up, and then I act, not once, not twice, but over and over and over again, I spin the chamber of my gun and go click, and then spin it again and go click, and spin it again. That's what our text says. See the words go on sinning? They go on and on sinning, not because we're weak, not because we're ignorant, not because we're impulsive, but because we want it. And we intend to do it as if nothing else matters. Now that's the action, but that's not all, the sinning willfully. Because if you sin willfully, certainly, uh, you have to choose to do that, but there are some attitudes, or maybe we could say some beliefs that you carry within yourself that allow you to come to that place in your life. And those attitudes, I think, are described in the middle of verse 29. There are three of them. Notice it says that one tramples underfoot the Son of God. Now, he doesn't do that literally. He does that attitudinally. He does it in his heart. In his heart, he's made a decision. Maybe a good paraphrase might be not to follow after Jesus, but to walk on Jesus. That's what it's talking about. The Christ who comes into your life and says, follow me. <laughs> I've got good things for you to enjoy. I'm the Lord. Follow after me. The person who sins willfully has in his heart a totally different direction than following after. In fact, he meets Jesus going the other way. And rather than just passing him by, because Jesus will always try to block the road, the attitude is to think, I can walk on him with no effect. That's what it means to trample under the Son of God. It's the attitude of your heart. Notice there's a second attitude that he carries, and that is that he regards as unclean the blood by which he was set apart to God. I want you to notice the word unclean. It's a very rich word. It comes from uh, a word that most of us are familiar with. I know most of you don't know Greek, but some of you have heard the word koinonia. It's a word that was used of the church in which we hold things in common together. This word comes from that word. It's the word koinon, and it just means common. A person carries in his heart this feeling about the blood of Christ. 
he feels that it's not special to him. He feels it's ordinary, common. The idea of somebody dying on a cross, giving his life for me, that has taken no real effect in his life. And though he may understand it theologically, he doesn't understand it emotionally. He's not come to the place where it's moved him. In fact, it's come to the place where he thinks he can disregard it as insignificant, as common, everyday blood. And therefore, with that kind of attitude towards Christ's blood, it really has no special significance in his life. It's common, ordinary, and insignificant to what's really going on within his heart and how he makes his decisions. That's his attitude. Thirdly, notice the phrase, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Of course, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit who is within us to lead us and guide us and influence us into an abundance of life. And yet, though many of us will probably never understand fully that treasure that God has given us in the person of the Holy Spirit, for the Christian who sins willfully, as he confronts the Spirit in attitude, in his heart, he is not inspired by that Spirit. In fact, he takes a totally different laissez-faire, que sera, sera kind of attitude to the Spirit and then tries to actually take advantage of that Spirit and insults him. It's like a story that a friend of mine told who had a beautiful mountain retreat in Arizona and, and uh, there was a couple in our church who was uh, there that was struggling with needs and problems and so they gave them a couple of weeks to go up and enjoy that beautiful cabin with all the amenities and everything that was there. Took them out of their place and brought them to a new place, a beautiful place with all things to enjoy. And when that couple came up weeks later after this couple had left, they found out that that couple had stolen all their silverware. <laughs> what an insult to somebody who's wanting to do something for you. And yet, the Spirit of God brings us to a new place out of the poverty or the impoverishment of our old way of life, no matter how good that we look, puts us in a new place, gives us all things to enjoy, and then we steal and we rob and we cheat and we lie and we fornicate. That's an insult. That's what this writer's talking about here. Looking to the Spirit and rather than listening to Him, disregarding His convicting presence, His powerful impressions, mocking his warnings as if they're impotent, just like Bob. See, every time Bob wanted to pass through that veil there, notice how easily he came from one world to the other, but on the way back, it got more and more difficult. That's the way it is in the Christian life. You can always go from spirituality to worldliness very easy, but on the way back, you meet someone. And as you try to move past him, you have to insult him, you have to stomp on him, and you have to treat him as common, ordinary, flesh and blood. But he's not. But that's the attitude you've got to carry to get by him, or else turn as Bob did at the end and walk away completely from the relationship. See, that's how you play Christian roulette. That's what we're talking about here this morning. It starts in the heart with distorted perspectives. It then in turn gives rise to a premeditated evil that goes on and on as if it could go on forever, but it can't. And that's what our text is going to tell us. It can't. There are consequences. But before we look at those consequences, I think that you have to stop just for a moment and ask a why question. 
Because I think this text, though it doesn't ask this for us, I think it invites us to ask it to it. And that is, why would a true Christian want to play this game? Why would they want to do it? What could inspire these kind of attitudes that would lead then to this kind of ongoing willful defiance? Well, our text doesn't answer it, but I'm going to give you two possibilities. There may be others, and you may have already thought of them. But two that come to my mind are these. First of all, for some to go on and sin willfully, it might be because they've been taught a cheap grace, not a costly grace. And by the way, it is. And that's why it at times should move us even to tears. But they've been taught a cheap grace. The whole of their spiritual education has been heavily accented with God forgives and God forgets and God will not judge and God is patient and God is long-suffering. You're secure. Whatever you do, you're guaranteed that you're going to be there with Him at some point. Don't worry about what you do. Don't worry about how far you've fallen. And though those are true, there's a vacuum of the other side which says, God is serious about your life and what you do, and where you go, and who you're with. And he is not mocked. The late M.R. DeHaan, who was a medical doctor and then who later began to teach the Bible and taught it so effectively, they put him on radio and he spoke to millions of people for a number of years over radio, said these words, to preach grace, grace, free grace, without the counterbalancing truth of the responsibilities of grace, and the penalty for the believer's sin and the suffering for our misdeeds here and now, as well as at the judgment seat of Christ, is indeed a dangerous doctrine for the church. The Bible is clear that God does judge His people. The looseness and worldliness of Christians, the lethargy and indifference of those professing Christ are to a degree the results of a one-sided, unbalanced preaching of grace that results in a false sense of security. For some of you, you may have come where the constant verbiage was to comfort you with a disregard to alerting you, which we're doing this morning. For others, it may be because for whatever reason, your faith or my faith has been divorced from real life. I don't know if you feel that movement in our world today, but since the early part of the 19th century or the 20th century, it seems that there has been a move to somehow box religion outside the quarters of real life as if it doesn't fit in real life. Just keep it on the site. And personally, I think one of the greatest challenges for the church in the decade ahead is to release our faith from just doing church. <laughs> doing church on Sunday or doing our religion at weddings, and doing our religion at funerals, and doing our religion at the point of crisis, or doing our religion at certain high and holy holidays, but forgetting and disregarding and thinking that it doesn't matter in everyday life. Christianity is not an event. You don't do Christianity. You live it. And if you don't live it, you don't do it. That's what the church needs to be saying today. Jesus is not Lord of the church only. Jesus is Lord of life. That was His calling. But some Christians never seem to understand that. 
It's like there's a veil over their eyes. As simple as that truth is, it's like the church can't hear that anymore. It's like a veil, like behind me, is over their eyes. And there's one set of rules for religion. Another set of rules for real life. You know, when uh, Magic Johnson first announced that he got the HIV virus, I think for a brief, just a brief moment, the American public understood that life is not dichotomous. I don't think they necessarily thought all through this like a philosopher, but I think they sensed it deep within. It was as if for a moment, because of who he is and how removed he is and how high and, 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 and lifted up he is as an athletic hero, it's as if in him having that virus for a moment, just so brief a moment, it was like we all knew that there really are moral absolutes. That you can't compartmentalize your life and live by one set of rules and very disciplined rules in one arena and no set of rules in another arena of life. It just doesn't work that way. But then magic went on to my great disappointment and it caused me such uneasiness to then announce that he was going to be an advocate for safe sex. And then the curtain closed very dramatically in that moment. I think some of you probably felt that but didn't know how to articulate it maybe at the moment. But suddenly, I said in my heart, he still doesn't get it. It still hadn't come together for him. He still hadn't figured it out. And now he's going to go out and help others live in that dichotomous view of life as if it'll work when his very body is screaming at him. Doesn't work that way. Can't you see? I've mulled over this for a few weeks since that announcement, or a week since that announcement, and I decided to write Magic Johnson a letter. I'm going to read it to you. Dear Irvin Magic Johnson, you don't know me, but I've been a fan of yours for years. Nobody in basketball has ever done it better than you, Magic. The Magic Man is a nickname you truly deserve. Hearing you have the HIV virus took my breath away. I was stunned and shocked. I really appreciated the bravery you exhibited in making your illness known. Since I know firsthand what is ahead of you, I feel your pain all the more. Nevertheless, your public statement left me uneasy. Forgive me for saying this, but for some reason I felt like you were still playing to the crowd when you offered your services as a safe sex advocate. Certainly this will play well to a liberal media and special interest groups and AIDS activists and Planned Parenthood and the like. They will exalt your every move. But somehow from a hero, I guess I expected more. I wanted to hear Irvin share his heart, not magic play the crowd. I wanted tears, not that great big smile. For you to say that you were deceived, that life is more than a game. I wanted you to tell young people, my kids especially, that you regret the hundreds of women you used as playthings and sex objects, and they in turn used you. But instead, my boys heard you say that it's okay to use women, just be safe. 
For my daughters, I wanted you to apologize to the women that you no doubt gave the AIDS virus to. They are going to die, Irvin. I wanted to hear you say you wish you would have married your high school sweetheart sooner. That a lifelong commitment is better than indiscriminate pleasure seeking. I would have liked to have seen you cry for the child your wife bears who won't have a daddy to grow up with. I would have liked to have heard you admit what our world is forever denying, that we live in a moral universe with moral absolutes that sooner or later will judge everyone who break them. Instead, you have chosen to become a safe sex spokesman. You're going to tell kids to do something <laughs> that you never did. What's worse, it's not safe. Hasn't anyone told you, Irvin, that a condom doesn't always work? That it will fail the user a certain percentage of times? That you're playing HIV roulette with it? And that years from now, hasn't it occurred to you that there will be a number of boys and girls listening to you, but adults then, hospitalized with bleeding cancerous sores dripping on their sheepskin mats? with TB in their intestines, with pneumonia covering their lungs, with tubes running out of every conceivable place, blind in both eyes with a ventilator forcing oxygen into their now shrunken, disease-ridden bodies, prolonging only the agony and the torture. And they will be saying, but magic told us it was safe. But by then, you will have passed the ball to someone else. Nice assist. And they will be left to discover the awful truth for themselves, that Irvin's magic worked only on a basketball court where he lived by the rules, not off the court where he didn't. So what are the consequences for the Christian who lives this double life. Our text mentions three. First is found at the close of verse 26. If you'll notice, it says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, the effects of Christ's sacrifice, as glorious as they are, they're removed. And on your outline, what it should say is your spiritual protection dissolves. That's the hard reality. The cross no longer applies. In its place is something more ominous. Verse 30, for we know him who says, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. I believe a Christian who is willfully sinning, and I'm talking about a true Christian, I think in that path to willful disobedience, they can sense the ominous tones in their spirit. I think the Spirit of God signals that for them from time to time. He issues His warning, and as He does, the freedom that one should enjoy in Christ, this delicious freedom, turns instead to an increasing sense of fear. That's why it says in verse 27, when the sacrifice for sin is taken away, there remains a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Suddenly, you're not in the care of God anymore. You're in the crosshairs of God. And you can sense that. You can sense that time is running out. And I know for some, including myself, when you sense those ominous tones, for some, you turn and run back to safety. But for others who carry these attitudes of ordinary, insignificant, concerning the things of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, those ominous tones only speed up the deliberateness of how much they can sin 
and how much they can get away with before the axe falls. Notice time does run out. Verses 28 and 29, it says, in time punishment replaces grace. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, this is the Old Testament, and willfully set aside it, I might add, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think you will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Now our text goes even further. If you'll notice, God's punishments for willful disobedience for the New Testament Christian can go way beyond death, if you believe that. Notice it says that in the Old Testament they died, but then verse 29, and you might circle this, it says, but how much severer punishment, we could put in parenthesis, for New Testament Christians who think they can walk all over Jesus Christ. It's a punishment beyond death. You know, four years ago, Jimmy Swaggart was the number one Christian communicator on planet Earth. He surpassed Billy Graham. His crusades, his satellite TV, wrapped completely around this planet. He filled stadiums all over South America. But now he has been reduced to nothing. Nothing. He has lost the respect of his family. I'm sure his wife, even though she's still with him. His friends. He's lost his ministry. He has been stripped of his honor. And probably what's worse for a guy who wanted to be taken seriously. He is now, through the media and through a million lives, the laughing stock of the United States. The butt of cruel jokes. About the only soul, Jimmy Swaggart, can save now as his own. From the top to the bottom, with a presumptuous lifestyle and attitudes that thought, I'm different from everybody else. And I would suggest to you that the death that he is dying goes far beyond a physical death. In fact, physical death would be a kinder punishment for that man. Verse 31 sums it up well. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Please note, falling into the hands of God is one thing. Placing yourself into the hands of God is clearly another thing. One brings terror. The other brings, and the whole book of Hebrews shouts that out, this out at us, it brings rest. It brings encouragement. It brings inspiration and comfort, companionship, life, and power, but to fall is something else indeed. It's terrifying. So how can a person avoid playing Christian roulette? You know, that answer, or the answer I would say, is different for different people here. It really is. For some of you, you need to expand your theology concerning the character of God. You just, need, you just need a sermon like this to kind of help stretch you in a broader way. You've heard God is love and you've heard God is full of grace and mercy. But this passage kind of helps add some weight to the other side of the scale and it says, but God is also a God of righteousness. And He's also a God of justice. And those have to be balanced 
if you're to have a healthy relationship with Him. I would suggest to you there's not a person in here that can have a healthy relationship with anyone without those two. See, at the core of any relationship is love and mercy and forgiveness and commitment. And we all like that. But what always borders a relationship, and this I hope will be a helpful insight to you, is fear. If there isn't in that other person those borders, you'll presume upon them. My wife is extremely sweet, and you, most of you know her, but from the day I met her <laughs> in the seventh grade, I felt those borders. And if I transgress those borders, it doesn't matter how big I am or how strong I am or who I am. But that helps us have a healthy relationship. It's the same with God. A healthy relationship with God at the core, yes, is love, but at the borders is fear. And as Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said, fear is the beginning of wisdom. You might need your theology expanded. But for some of you, you just may need help. You may need to seek help. In some cases, ongoing sin may not be the result of these twisted attitudes I've mentioned, though maybe you're falling continually to the same issue over and over, and you're thinking, he's talking to me today. Well, maybe I am, but, but if you can't stop sinning in an area, but you want to stop, this passage is not for you. That's what I want to be clear. If you can't stop in an area and you just keep going on and on, there is a deeper issue that you need to discover, and you don't need punishment, and God probably won't punish, but what you do need is help. And by resisting that help, you are robbing and punishing yourself of a much more abundant Christian life. And I would offer to you the encouragement not to feel shameful in seeking out that help or embarrassed or inferior, but I would take the bold step of faith and begin to look for that help and seek it. And then finally, for maybe some of the rest of us, we may need to finish out our faith by allowing Jesus Christ to go with us in the life rather than just meeting us here on Sunday. You know, it's a growing relationship with the living Lord that is the best insurance against this mountain. <laughs> and the more we grow with Christ, the further away we drive away from this incredible, awesome peak and it gets smaller and smaller on the horizon till if we get far enough away, it'll only look like an insignificant pebble because of the strength of that relationship. One need not fear if he's developing this healthy relationship with God. You know, God is the one who longs for that more than anyone. In fact, I got a really wonderful letter. It's a fictitious letter, but it illustrates God's desire for that kind of relationship. And in a sense, it's a good close to our message here today because in a sense, it brings balance to all the fire and threat that this, pass you, that this passage blazes with. Let me read it to you. Dear friend, how are you? I saw you yesterday as, we were as you were talking with your friends and I waited all day hoping you would want to talk with me too. I gave you a sunset to close your day and a cool breeze to rest you, and I waited. You never came. It hurt me, but I still love you because I am your friend. I saw you sleeping last night, and I longed to touch your brow. 
so I spilled moonlight upon your face. Again, I waited, wanting to rush down so we could talk. I have so many gifts for you. And you awoke and rushed off to work. And my tears were in the rain. If you would only listen to me, I love you. I try to tell you in the blue skies and in the quiet green grass. I whisper it in the leaves on the trees and breathe it in the colors of flowers. I shout it to you in the mountain streams and give the birds love songs to sing. I clothe you with warm sunshine and perfume the air with nature's scents. My love for you is deeper than the ocean and bigger than the biggest need in your heart. So please, don't forget me. Sincerely, Jesus. You know, our best application this morning as we leave is just a, just a very simple one. And that is, when you leave, please, don't forget to take Jesus with you. And as we close in these final moments, you might use the quiet that we have to decide what action point you want to take with what I've said. But my appeal to you is that the living God wants you, and if He doesn't have your will, He has nothing at all. He wants to love you. He wants to bless you. He wants to encourage you and to lead you. But He will not let you take advantage of Him. Think on these things. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.